This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for June 14th, 2018, the special place in hell edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., Joining me is John Dickerson from New York City of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hi. And John has been attempting to remove a very gummy sticker from his phone. That has occupied us. That's why we're late taping. If the show gets up late, it's because of the stupid gummy sticker. But we'll probably be okay. Also, in New York, we have a special guest. Emily is out. And that does not matter because Dahlia Lithwick of Slate, the host of the Amicus podcast and writer of so much wisdom about legal and other things is with us. I am, for one, I'm pretty excited to get a Canadian to come to the table and participate. That our historic enemy, that we've managed to sit down with our historic enemy this week, the Canadians. Uh, and, and an angry Canadian. And you know, there's only one of those. Yeah. So it's good to have the one angry Canadian on the show, I think. Thanks She's for having me. Constantly talking about softwood lumber. <laughs> Do not, don't give her any milk or cheese. Yeah. John, I will not subsidize her vicious dairy war against American cows anymore. I'm sick of it. I'm sick yeah. of Dahlia doing that. I agree. So on this week's Gap Fest, the Singapore summit, is the world safer now that the nuclear threat is gone? According to President Trump, there is no more nuclear threat from North Korea, so I slept easier last night. Then the Supreme Court gave Republicans a big win in an Ohio voting rights case. What implications does it have for voter registration, voter rolls throughout the rest of the country. And then the weird results in Tuesday night's primary election, which sent Mark Sanford packing and advanced a neo-Confederate Trumpist horror, Corey Stewart, to the GOP nomination for Virginia Senator. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And don't forget, we have a live show coming up in Philadelphia on July 18th at the Keswick Theater in Glenside. Slate.com slash live for tickets. They're still some available. It'll be in Emily's hometown. We want to give her hometown support. Uh, it's going to be a great show. So we hope if you're in Philadelphia or near Philadelphia or anywhere in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or Delaware that you can come and join us. Slate.com slash live on July 18th at 7.30 p.m. President Trump is back from Singapore after his 11-hour summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. He did not sample any of the legendary street food of that city-state while he was there, um, but he accomplished other things. He, he has returned to announce a triumph. He says that the nuclear threat from North Korea is gone. There is a joint communique from North Korea and the United States in which we agreed to work toward the denuclearization of the peninsula without any specificity attached to it. President Trump was obviously pleased with himself. The global news coverage was was uh, was more skeptical. It universally, essentially, depicted this as a triumph for Kim. So, John, why why has this been 
perceived by many, at least, as a triumph for Kim? What is it that that makes people think he got the better deal out of this brief summit? Well, I think the the primary reason is because he got global equivalents. There was the the leader of North Korea, Korea and the American president shaking hands. Their flags were arrayed next to one another in pattern, I mean, in succession. Um, and the president was and has continued to be quite flattering about the North Korean leader. Um, and so just in the geopolitical prestige game, um, one of the things that Kim Jong-un wanted by creating a nuclear weapons program was membership into the global club. Um, and he got it hugely in this uh, summit. And so if it takes care of this problem and gets North Korean nukes um, shuttered forever, then worth playing the price. Others would say, others including a number of conservatives in uh, the National Review, Weekly Standard, not exactly lefty publications, have said, uh, sort of raised their hand and said, you know, when brutal dictators who have 100,000 or so people in a gulag who um, have killed members of their family and who have enslaved their people... Um, you don't give them this kind of uh, platform and these kinds of uh, accolades, even if they have a nuclear weapon. And the easy example there is Ronald Reagan, who negotiated with the Soviets, but still called them the evil empire. And so this uh, moral equivalence, and then the president's, when asked about praising Kim, the president essentially said, well, there are a lot of bad people in the world. Something very similar to what he said about the Russians and Turkey when they did when they had their crackdown there. What he did not do, that which he did with Turkey and Russia, was draw an equivalence with America. He didn't do that in this case. But he did give Kim a considerable moral upgrade. And then the question is, what did the United States get in return? So, Dahlia, I mean, President Trump, as I said, he said the nuclear threat is gone. I think we can generally agree that that's probably not entirely the case. But but there's certainly a de-escalation of the bellicosity that we saw earlier in the year. There's clearly, at the moment, a reduced risk of conflict between the United States and North Korea or North Korea and South Korea. And that seems nice. So so is there nothing in that that we, we should celebrate? The, the mere fact that we're having a conversation where we say <laughs> that Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump are no longer calling each other names and threatening to blast each other out of the skies on Twitter is a step in the right direction. <laughs> it's 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 really like as a parent, if your kid was setting small brush fires and then they just went to like gouging each other with shrimp forks, would you say, hey, these are outstanding kids. This is how I want the world to be. So I, I, I feel that part of the problem is, you know, they created the drama that they're now celebrating having diffused and it's you know which is not to say you know this was a, a real problem before it will continue to be a real problem i completely agree with john that if in some ways this leads to meaningful and serious denuclear nuclearization going forward then that's demonstrably good for everybody but i just think what scares me about this david is that this is another iteration of Donald Trump saying, look, I know that there's nothing on this paper. There's nothing in this deal that is actually verifiable. We have no way of, you know, knowing an itemized list of what they have. We have no meaningful inspection or other, you know, provisions. We don't even have what Pompeo said we were going to have. But trust me when I say because it's about me 
And because I trust this guy now, it's all going to be okay. And it's that weird reduction to this kind of very, very unerring posture that, you know, the rules are me, the law is me, policy is me, no one else matters because I'm me. And I, I find that a step in the wrong direction. I think anything that we do that normalizes the idea that Trump is the only person who matters and his feelings about things are the only things that matter and that policy is just kind of wallpaper to that, that that does scare me. Do you guys think there's there's any possibility that this leads to actual elimination of nuclear weapons in North Korea. I I find it just impossible in my own mind to imagine that this is the case. The only country that has voluntarily gone denuclear uh, ever is South Africa, and that was because the apartheid government was giving way to the ANC-led government, and the apartheid government was like, well, hell, we, you know, we're out of here. We don't, we'll, we'll denuke for that reason. Um, but history shows that there's been no other example of it. Is there any reason to think that North Korea, which has gained this tremendous leverage by having these weapons, would ever willingly give these weapons up? It would sure be surprising <laughs> because they've spent so much time. And and one of the things that the president should be given, um, well, gosh, so much to say, given credit for, is that one of the obstacles that was uh, seemingly one of the seeming obstacles to getting North Korea even to come to the table was that they had a super high pain threshold. And the idea was basically sanctions in the past have not caused them to come to the table because they're willing to inflict all kinds of pain on their citizenry uh, in order to keep marching towards this nuclear program, which they see as the central uh, element in their prestige. Well, obviously, they felt enough pain to come to the table. Now, in the end, we should note that what the president so far has agreed to is essentially something that's been on the table from the Chinese and the Russians for months and months and months and months, which is essentially freeze for freeze. North Koreans promise to freeze their nuclear program. U.S. promises to freeze its joint uh, operations with uh, South Korea. So this this deal has been out there for a while. I should also note that one thing, uh, um, uh, one quote that I think is operative here is uh, this one. And it goes as follows. The reason great deal makers do not openly celebrate a deal, especially one that is not complete, is that it shows weakness to the other side. So that uh, quote is from Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> and so that's from 2013. Obviously, he's celebrating this deal. It's quite incomplete to your question. Two, two crucial questions in, are in play. One, how do you verify uh, how do you, A, identify what North Korea has in their nuclear program? And then, B, how do you verify? This was the central question of the Iran uh, joint agreement that Republicans rightly were highly critical of, that the inspections regime, as they call it, uh, was too slow, too pokey, and that the Iranians could monkey around. You you had to let them know you were coming, and they could hide things. And this was seen as a ser serious central flaw of the agreement. When Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was asked about the inspections, he got very angry uh, and suggested the, the questions were out of bounds, which is surprising because Congressman Mike Pompeo was very articulate and forceful in saying that a key flaw of the Iranian agreement was that it was its um, weak inspections regime. The second thing is, if the, you, normally the way this would go is you'd say, OK, you give, give up your nukes. And then the other person on the other side says, OK, I'll do that if you lift the sanctions. Well, uh, the North Koreans think that President Trump said that he would lift the sanctions. What the secretary of state has said is that there will be no sanctions relief to the North Koreans until there is complete denuclearization. Um, and there is a crucial set of diplomatic, there's crucial language here about complete, verifiable and irreversible 
dismantlement of the nuclear program. That has been the traditional diplomatic language in terms of basically writing something that has no loopholes to allow North Korea to maintain any kind of nuclear capability. That language was not put in the agreement. Mike Pompeo says that that's just a semantic thing. It's not a semantic thing in these kinds of agreements. The language has been fussed over and picked at for years and years and years. And when you don't use the language, something is being said. I mean, this is not they had months and months and months to work on this. This isn't sort of like, oh, we had to to rush it out and the autocorrect didn't get the words right. Uh, So something funny is going on here. Those are two big impediments to full denuclearization. But we did have the movie. I I think we should stop and really think about how a film that I think was made by the people who do the Delta Airlines seatbelt video, except the Trump administration credited a movie-making company that, in fact, did not make the film. So let's just pause. The light of prosperity and innovation has burned bright for most of the world. History is always evolving. And there comes a time when only a few are called upon to make a difference. But the question is, what difference will the few make? The past doesn't have to be the future. Out of the darkness can come the light. And the light of hope can burn bright. What if a people that share a common and rich heritage can find a common future. Their story is well known, but what will be their sequel? And and who among us is not moved to tears? I, 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 you know, Dahlia, honestly, I will defend that thing. I think that I'm was, the, I think that was a master stroke. I think that's so great. I think it's, we're, it's something we're good at. It's very flattering. It's, it's something that Kim might well have been susceptible to. I'm sure I would have been susceptible to it. And well, Mark, we're very good at marketing. It's it's using a medium that we know that he loves to kind of try to appeal to him. I thought that was like that. That was a that was a an a move from the Trump team there. I, I must say I'm in the plots camp on this for this other reason, which is we know that Kim Jong Un is a um, is a consumer of American culture. <laughs> and and the culture that he consumes, remember the Dennis Rodman example, the culture that he consumes is not exactly the detached, ironic, subtle fare of uh, uh, that we, that we all might embrace. But he's a big, you know, uh, sort of Jerry Bruckheimer kind of consumer of culture. And that's what that film was. The other, but, the, but the thing about the film was when I watched it, I thought, which country are they talking about here? And there was a an equivalence in the production that 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 underlies this criticism that conservatives particularly have been most angry about, which is there was a kind of the way in which the film was done. It suggested that the leader could have been the leader of either country. But in any event, it sort of reaffirmed this idea that North Korea was on equal footing. Um, But as a as a pitch to to uh, Kim Jong Un, I thought it was I thought it was pretty clever. But the question is, what did you get for the pitch? I asked Lindsey Graham the day of the agreement. The president said North Korea gave up a lot. What did they give up? And Lindsey Graham said nothing. The and 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 just to continue my role as furious Canadian, <laughs> which I just have to point out, my my children say when I bring it like a Toronto eight, uh, my kids say it's a Brooklyn minus four. Like I, <laughs> so I just this is me like. 
seething with outrage, with <laughs> a huge smile on my face. But um, I, I, I want to point out that I, you know, I, I, I can't dispute that this may or may not have moved the needle uh, for, for, for Kim Jong-un. But uh, it also, I think, really fed into the just insanity of the spectacle around this. And I guess I want to know because I know that the, quote, mainstream media took a bit of a beating for the breathless, you know, days-long coverage. I think I want to ask John, is that unfair for folks to say, you know, while we were watching the movie, uh, you know, kids were being ripped from their parents at the border and the United States was announcing plans to denaturalize uh, citizens, uh, something we used to do only for Nazis. Uh, and we were no longer going to give asylum to women victims of domestic abuse. That was just Monday. Right, right. Uh, so I think there's a way in which the movie to me is so emblematic of this. All of America is now the first two minutes of The Bachelor. Right. <laughs> that's what that movie was. Well, I think that's, that's definitely um, true of the entire Trump presidency. Usually, the thing that is distracting the, whatever we want to call it, the mainstream media, the echo chamber, the whatever, usually the thing that it's distracting it from what its, what its day job should be, which is paying attention to things that are important, um, is something much more frivolous. I mean, in this case, this is something big. Barack Obama said to Trump as he was coming in, President Trump, as he was then uh, President-elect Trump, as he was coming to office, North Korea is your biggest problem. Mm -hmm. And it is the thing over which the president himself has the most control of the, although those other things you mentioned, of course, are under the executive branch and therefore he has some control over them. But, but so in this case, it feels like it was a legitimate thing to be focused on. I, I, the fact that it happened at all is, a, is an achievement for the president. And, uh, and yet you can say that and then say the thing that has so far happened is quite a bit less of an achievement than certainly he claims it to be. Um, but I think all the other things you uh, you mentioned are real. Uh, did you mention the Affordable Care Act at the uh, attempt to dismantle that as well? Um, <laughs> that was Friday. No, so and I this is yeah. This is the um, this is the challenge of the Trump administration because both the amount of news that we um, we have to cover, the rapidity of its changing, the um, susceptibility to being baited um, by things that are either put forward by the president uh, or that we um, self-bait ourselves. Is that even a concept? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's true, although I think slightly less applicable in this case. Well, there was this extraordinary piece by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic this week. He interviewed a number of White House officials about what they thought the Trump doctrine was, and they insisted that there was a Trump doctrine, and two different ones described it with the same sentence. Well, there was one used a plural and one used a sing 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 singular. So it, but it was, we're America, bitch, or we're America, bitches. And I thought this was just like so revealing because it, it, it suggests, I mean, Goldberg elaborates on this a little bit, but it's essentially the Trump belief that we owe nothing to anyone, that we are not part of any institutions, we're not part of any organization, that permanent kind of destabilization and do, you know, going our own way and just messing with people in any way we want is is going to be the policy. And we see with his tantrum, his ridiculous behavior around the G7 towards our very closest allies, towards the countries which are our biggest trading partners, our, our greatest supports in the world, the, the buttress of what's kept the world safe and prosperous for the last 60 years. His grotesque behavior towards that group of countries followed immediately by his quite loving behavior towards uh, Kim Jong-un is 
seems to me to to embody this. It seems like Goldberg really captured something with that yeah. phrase. I think he, uh, you'll remember that uh, Goldberg also, um, in his coverage of the uh, of the Obama administration, was the one to surface the quote that, that he thought, and I think correctly captured, the Obama foreign policy doctrine, which was basically, don't do stupid shit. And so that's not bad. Two administrations in two extremely pithy um, uh, summing up st- statements, but I don't think there's a uh, I don't think there's any question that that's that's about as good as you can do in terms of distilling the American uh, foreign policy as it's practiced right now. Now I don't think at all that that is the way that, um, and this is one of the great tensions and one of the unresolved, and it'll make a great book someday. The tension between the president of the United States and the Secretary of Defense. Jim Mattis is going across the world dealing with military leaders in an old-fashioned, highly traditional, diplomacy-first, paying super careful attention to the sort of feelings, if to to use a word that may not approach, doesn't really work with Jim Mattis, but it's true. (laughs) Um, And it reminds me very much of what he did along with Petraeus in in Iraq when they implemented the um, counterinsurgency, which was instead of rolling in with the big tanks in the middle of these towns in Iraq, they went in, they took off their sunglasses, they took off their flak jackets and walked through the town and got to know the locals as a way to try to help ferret out the insurgents. He's dealing with these countries that the president is offending in a more, much more traditional way. And so the question is, how, how are those two things able to exist at the same time? And Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is the, is the person, I don't think there's been a single story about a conflict between the president and his Secretary of Defense. I think that is a really interesting part of the question you teed up. If you believe that you are, I think Fred Kaplan made this point in Slate, that you are, as Donald Trump, at war with every president who has come before you, the beauty of going to the G7 and saying all those deals were bad deals and we're getting worked by Canada because everybody who came before me was a chump and a sucker. Uh, it actually makes perfect sense if you believe that you are the only effective president in world history. It actually captures also the self-regard at work here. You know, One of the downsides of this kind of diplomacy, though, is that nations that no longer can rely on the United States start to go do uh, or rely on the predictability of the United States, go off and start doing their own things, making their own alliances, creating their own networks, uh, forgiving the misbehavior of other countries because it's uh, a way to curry favor with the United States. When a new American president is in town and who may want to try to reestablish some of these connections, these countries may not find it in their interest to reestablish those connections. There is one of the great questions of the of the effect of the Trump presidency will be the extent to which the normal job of stewardship in the presidency, which is to say you do things not just for the moment, you do things, this is what norms are about, is that you behave in a certain way because you know the office and the country will be there after you leave. Uh, you endure applying the oil of diplomacy to the engine because while uh, it may take a little while longer, the oil lubricates the engine, uh, as opposed to just deny- blowing it off altogether, running the engine hot, you may get to your destination faster, but the engine, once you get there, is a is a mess and can't be picked up by the next uh, owner of the rental car. My one, one final word, just uh, building off of something you said, Dahlia, which is, it hadn't occurred to me until right now that one of the other problems, that, that broadly speaking, business people are divided into deal makers and operational people. 
and they see the world very, very differently. And the fact that Trump basically doesn't believe in operations, is uninterested in operations, and is very interested in deals has unexpected pernicious effects. That if you have somebody like Romney, who is fundamentally an operations person, you are very concerned with process and making things work right and efficiency. And that actually is a, is a much better model for an effective president than a deal maker because deal making is, it's really only a very small part of what you do. And it's it's uh, it lends itself to the zero sum thinking, which is quite dangerous in this case. Slate Plus members, you get an extra segment on this podcast and other Slate podcasts. This extra GabFest extra Slate Plus segment today is going to be about the Charlottesville to New York City move. Both Dahlia Lithwick and John Dickerson have in the course of their life now migrated from Charlottesville up to New York. We're going to talk about that move, the difference between those two cities, and uh, we'll, we'll get some insight about how to move to New York. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up for Slate Plus today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Tis the season for huge Supreme Court decisions on Monday brought us another doozy of the Gorsuch era. We're taping on Thursday morning, so it's very possible that something big is dropping even as we speak. I'm sure Dahlia is on on Twitter right now checking to see whether something big has come. But on Monday, further confirming that the McConnell delay of 2016 may have been the most consequential political act of our lifetime, a five to four conservative majority reversed a circuit court decision and found that Ohio has the right to purge its voter rolls of people who haven't voted in three consecutive federal elections. The case is Husted versus the A. Philip Randolph Institute. Dahlia, take it away. What were the legal issues at stake? What did the court find? This was a huge Ohio vote purge that threw many, many, many voters off the rolls. And what they did was they said, all we're doing is cleaning the rolls. What we want to do is figure out who's moved. That is absolutely statutorily allowed. You're allowed to, states have all sorts of power to look at their own roles and figure out uh, who's moved. But what they did, and this is expressly not allowed in the statutes that were uh, under consideration, is they used whether you have voted in a previous election as a proxy for deciding who's moved. And we have indisputably passed laws that say, you cannot punish voters 
for not voting. In other words, the use it or lose it frame of if you haven't voted in a couple of cycles, you suck and we don't want you to vote is a distinctly un-American proposition. Ohio, therefore, said, oh, we're not punishing folks for not voting. What we're doing is using their failure to vote in an election as an indicia that they've moved and didn't tell us. And so what the state did was they sent you a crummy postcard that said, hey, we think you've moved. And as you and I know, sending crummy postcards is a very, very bad way to get information to voters. And so voters were thrown off the rolls if they didn't then vote in two subsequent elections. Some of the plaintiffs in this case that was uh, brought by uh, Philip Randolph Institute. One of the people was a, a guy who was serving abroad and didn't vote because he was out of the country uh, serving the United States, shows up to vote and he's purged. And so the the gist of the case becomes, is this system of throwing folks off the rolls? And I, I guess I have to say, although it goes without saying, the folks who disproportionately got thrown off the rolls were the elderly and veterans and uh, the very poor and minorities and people in big cities uh, in Ohio. They all out of proportion are the ones who are purged. They show up to vote and they're off the rolls. So really the claim was, does this mechanism, which by the way, six other states have very similar mechanisms, uh, does this violate uh, the Motor Voter Act? And as you said, by a 5-4 margin, the court said, no, it's cool. This is, of course, a demoralizing example, yet another demoralizing example of the clear partisan split in thinking about voting rights legislation and jurisprudence, whether it's voter ID laws or restoring the voting rights of felons or early voting or the provision of polling places, there's a just an incredibly strong and growing partisan split where Republicans are generally taking the side of making the franchise more difficult and Democrats uh, are on the side of making the franchise more accessible. John, is there any way to bridge this? It's a really, it's really demoralizing that Republicans now sort of seem to think they're in the business of trying to limit people voting. And I guess their their take on it is we're, we're preventing voter fraud. But yeah. as we know, there is no voter fraud, essentially. This is, uh, I mean, there's no reason that this would suddenly turn into an issue where reasonable heads would prevail different than, than any of the other issues that are splitting people. But I do think one of the interesting effects of this is that it does seem to increasingly be a turnout mechanism for liberal and democratic voters, the idea more broadly that this is a danger um, posed by Republicans. And, and you see these outside efforts now, several of them, including the one being led by Eric Holder, to get Democrats to focus on this, to get them to mobilize because it has this ultimate effect on their lives. And it used to be, I think this is fair to say, I think it used to be the kind of issue where liberals, some liberals were very focused on it, paying a lot of attention to it, but they could never weaponize it, by which I mean turn it into a motivational tool to get people to participate. And I think now it's, it is being used. Jason Kander is also involved in doing this. It is being used as a way to, to actually get people out to vote. And I think that to the extent that they get elected and in office, then then laws will change. Right. When I think about issues that could act for Democrats in the way that a uh, abortion and and abortion rights issues have acted for Republicans as a huge motivator. I think this is this is really one of them. I think you're right about it, John. That and one one of the things I've never understood is that there has I think and I think it's very old the political science uh, literature 
on this that shows that people, when you tell them they're about to lose their vote um, or that they that it's in some threat or peril, that it is a high, strong motivator to get and get out and turn out to vote. So if that's true, then why then how can the other thing I said earlier be true, which is the Democrats have not been mobilized by this issue as much? Perhaps it's it wasn't seen as a party wide battle. In other words, now I think if you're a Democrat, you think that this is in the list of bad things you think about Republicans, whereas maybe it wasn't always. But anyway, I, somebody smart will write in and, and, and um, settle that tension for me. Uh, I, I, no doubt that we have seen uh, elections following, for instance, when states increase barriers uh, for minorities, North Carolina, you know, when states tend to implement voter ID or other things that offend, we have seen the kind of massive backlash you're both describing. And I, I write about this constantly because it worries me. One outcome that is bipartisan is that everybody keeps losing confidence in voting. Right. And what bothers me about the Chris Kobox of the world and the election fraud commission is that the three of us can sit here till the cows come home and say there's no such thing as vote fraud and the statistics show you're more likely to be hit by lightning than to you know ever have an act of in-person polling place fraud, right? The fraud happens at, uh, when, when you're uh, registering to vote. It doesn't happen in polling places. We all know that. That's been proven a thousand times. But the, I think that the drumbeat that the Republican operatives, people like Chris Kobach, uh, people like Houston uh, in Ohio have managed to do is to really right. deeply ingrain the idea that your vote is pointless, that the system is cooked, that it's so full of fraud. And I worry that the long game here is to destabilize voter confidence in systems at all. And uh, when you have a, a system that under the guise of cleaning up, you know, making it fair, uh, is actually tossing, you know, tens of thousands of folks off the rolls. I think that there is a chance of a backlash to the backlash, just a growing sense by the voters that the whole, and, you know, that doesn't help when Russia <laughs> helps steal at the federal election. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that one of the things, and I've covered um, voting for so many elections, is that we wake up on the first week of November and think, our voting system is a mess. Something should be done. Uh, and, and I think this is a problem that it transcends voter ID. It transcends the myth of voter fraud. I think that we just have such intractable problems with voting machines, uh, with polling places that close down in minority uh, jurisdictions and mm -hmm. pop up seven more you know, polling places in Westport, Connecticut. And I think that the fact that we just don't think about it until an election is a week away is such a piece of, I think, almost kind of callous indifference to a problem that leads voters to think, wow, maybe the system really is broken. That, yeah. That's my, my bummer. I'm t I totally align myself with that thinking, Dolly. And I would go further, which is to say it's not simply lack of confidence in the actual voting system. It becomes a lack of confidence in politics or in government working. And so it's not simply that my vote doesn't count because the election is rigged. It's that actually the even once people are in office, they are unable to carry out. Uh, they just work for special interests. They don't work for me. People have become uh, disaffected from politics as a as a means of transformation. And there's a huge percentage of people who no longer believe in politics and the, the capacity of politics to affect good change or help them. And that's terrifying. Although it's funny in a way because is that what they don't believe in or did they 
Or do they believe that, because one of the benefits of Donald Trump for a number of people who support him is that it's, it's that he's being very efficient in their interest or what they think is in their interest. So in that sense, politics is working for them. So well, who, who, be- that's, uh, who believes that? A set of generally well, the people set of who's, rich people and, no, and I think, no, no, business I think, owners I mean, who, who no, are I think they're regulated. Uh, well, but if you look at the economic distribution of, uh, I mean, it's one of the things, liberals are constantly saying, why are you people on the lower end of the economic scale voting for Donald Trump? He's behaving outside of your interest. So I don't think it's just at the top of the income scale in terms of but the wait. He's behaving outside of their interest, though. So it's not. Helping. Yeah, but people don't do, vote in. The, but people have values, reasons for voting that are different from their economic interests, which is why rich people vote for Democrats who are going to raise their taxes. It's, but my point is that there is a way in which when you talk to Trump voters, they are excited about the things that he's doing with government. Now, it does tend to be in the in, the, in terms of stripping government out of life. So fewer regulations, lower taxes. That's where the, this theory breaks down. In other words, it's not using government. Well, I guess it is in some ways in terms of like opening up more lands to energy exploration. But again, you can see that in a kind of removing government regulation rather than effectively using government. But I think uh, I would just kind of I guess this is more of a modification on what you're saying, because I, th- I do hear a lot of people who are very happy with the way that he is engaging with government. Uh, Dolly, I want to go back to there is something demoralizing in the way that the Republicans who have pushed so hard on voter integrity and voter ID and and this, you know, we're securing the ballot and uh, have been so uninterested in investigating the Russian interference and the idea that a national enemy of ours has attempted to hack voter rolls, has, has uh, engaged in a, a massive campaign to influence our election. And which suggests that their perhaps their interest in voter integrity is not as um, simply uh, pure as they may present it to be. Uh, as long as it serves the interests of the GOP, uh, the greater good is served. And and you know you're quite right on the merits, David. On the merits, it should be we should all be setting our hair on fire every single day about the vulnerability uh, to hacking and to all kinds of hacking that, you know, thank God for, you know, the Ari Bermans of the world who write about this every single day. But for the rest of us, uh, this is a huge problem. And it, it has been susceptible to hacking. And we know that it's very, very easy to do this. You know, the good people at the Brennan Center are working on this. There are a lot of people who are trying to think it through, but you can't think it through unless you do that on a bipartisan basis. And I think that as long as it privileges GOP interests, it just doesn't feel like a crisis. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Another week, another set of primaries. We had Virginia, South Carolina, Nevada, North Dakota, Maine, and Alabama, I think. that was I made that out of my head. I didn't look that up, but that was what I could remember. There were two bits of genuinely shocking news to come out of the primaries on Tuesday. Mark Sanford, the South Carolina uh, member of the House, former governor who famously did not go on the Appalachian Trail when he was off on a tryst with his girlfriend, 
lost his House seat to a more Trumpy style challenger. And then in Virginia, Corey Stewart, a truly unpleasant, noxious, neo-Confederate white nationalist type, won the GOP nomination to oppose Tim Kaine for Senate. Uh, barring something remarkable happening, Stewart will lose that race and lose it badly. But he's just a piece of really, really a piece of work. And the question is, will he drag down other Republicans uh, in Virginia as he as he runs what promises to be a quite nasty campaign against Kane. So, Dahlia, let's start with Stewart from your formerly home state of Virginia. Virginia is an increasingly blue state. Why did somebody that unpleasant win? He, he narrowly lost the governor nomination last year. Why did he win this nomination? We know that Trumpism, at least as practiced by Trump, uh, is successful. And we know that it is energizing uh, a base that really loves him and really believes that this kind of politically incorrect truth to power, call it like you see it, you know, uh, overt in Stewart's case, (laughs) white supremacist language really, really is effective. And I think maybe the sidebar to that, David, is that there isn't another model. And so I think in some sense, it, it still works, at least among some parts of the party is because we don't know what else is out there that's working. But, sorry, it works. It works to win a primary. Mm-hmm. He can't, I don't think, win Virginia. And Virginia, don't forget, in November, we were all going, holy cow, look at Virginia. And it, one upset after another. We've seen, uh, I think, Virginia as a bellwether of a purple state turning pretty blue. Uh, so I don't see, maybe John will correct me if he thinks that Stewart has a chance. Uh, but I do think it goes to the kind of death rattle politics of we'll, we'll be like this and we'll win the primary. And then I guess take it from there. I don't know. I don't think this is a smart long-term plan. I think the question both in the, in the Virginia race and the, and with what happened with Mark Sanford is what are the limits? So, the question with Donald Trump has always been if he were running against any other candidate in the general election. So we know he lost the popular vote. So we know there is not in the number of people who went out to vote. We know that there is not a national groundswell for what Donald Trump was was selling. But we know that because of the candidate he was running against, both both specifically and the way that Hillary Clinton's team ran her campaign, uh, that Donald Trump was able to do something extraordinary. There were mitigating circumstances that made it unclear to get a really clear picture of exactly the size of his support, what portion of it was actually grooving on the specific campaign that he was running or or not grooving on Democrats or Hillary Clinton. So then when the test gets a little bit more complicated when you have other candidates out there, obviously uh, Roy Moore ran a Trump-like candidacy and it wasn't enough, but he had his own specific mitigating circumstances. So that was a problem. That was not a clean test. In Virginia, in the gubernatorial race, Ed Gillespie ran a kind of Stay away from Trump with a kind of some Trump hintings at occasion. That didn't work. So what you have with with Corey Stewart is the full Trump uh, experience in a purple state. In this case, you have two people suggesting that the country look at Stewart uh, as an example of where the Republican Party should go. The first is Steve Bannon, who describes Stewart as the, quote, titular head of the Trump movement. And then also you have the president tweeting in the case of the Virginia race in support of Stewart and telling telling Twitter uh, that people should not underestimate him. He's saying 
don't be elitist. This is really where the country is. The country, I mean, in this case, he's talking about Virginia, but he's making he's making a larger claim for the Stewart candidacy. I don't think it's the normal press mistakes that will be at issue here if people look at the Stewart candidacy uh, and draw larger conclusions. And, and, and just to add the, the gender valence to what John just said, I think it's so fascinating that Two emblematic women, you know, in in Alabama, Representative Martha Roby uh, is in a runoff. She fails to to secure the nomination uh, because she said uh, after the Access Hollywood tape two years ago, she said that's not cool for women. And in Virginia, uh, what should have been a lock for Representative uh, Barbara Comstock, another Republican who had a really close race because she said that the Access to Hollywood tape uh, and the boasting around it was, quote, vile and disgusting. And she almost didn't win. So just through the lens of gender, you have these Republican women who not unreasonably <laughs> two years ago said, I, I, I might want to distance myself from this kind of talk getting clobbered or barely uh, eking out a victory. And so I just think it goes to John's point that these things become markers that stand in and of themselves. Yeah, and I would add to that grouping, although she she lost uh, in a different way in a time ago, but at Kelly Ayotte, who was also critical of the president, said that she didn't think he was a role model for her children, ended up paying a paying a price for that as well former senator from from new hampshire so yeah yeah god can you imagine thinking that he was a role model for your children can you imagine feeling that way <laughs> weird it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting um, on the porch of your new New York home, John Dickerson. Although you probably don't have a porch because it's probably some some apartment crammed right. 47 stories up somewhere. We don't what get any you be, access to nature. What will you be chattering about? I am, will be chattering about the lovely video this week of uh, pitcher Ty Kane, who struck out oh, um, yes. Jack Koken uh, to win the game. And as Ty Kane was being celebrated by his catcher and his entire team, he passed them all to go give Jack, who was a, his longtime friend, a hug because he had just struck Jack out for the game. And I, uh, as a fan of baseball, whose son played baseball and who coached baseball, have always felt like, you know, striking out and particularly striking out to lose a game. That's, you know, this is life distilled into its essence. And, you know... Uh, in those moments, you need either you need to figure out that, you know, you will bat again someday, but also that there are good people and that the failure is not permanent and people still love you. Uh, and so that moment, I just thought in this day and age in which there tends to be a kind of vinegary cast in everything we do, uh, that was a moment I thought we should all stop and, and stare at for a little while. It was lovely. Very, very charming video. Dahlia Lithwick, what is your chatter? My chatter is my new fangirl craze over 
the Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is, I think, just a transformational leader. He is one of the architects of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, um, repairs of the breach, co-founder now of uh, the revival of uh, Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign in uh, Washington. Uh, And he, I had him on Amicus last weekend, and I have to say, you can, if you listen, I'm actually crying at the end uh, when I thanked him for for just some of the reasons John's just described, just for uh, a conversation that he is having about faith and the role of faith in thinking about what Donald Trump is doing. But more pointedly, I think, you know, we all suffer from the problem of having to uh, run around after Donald Trump's tweets like they're fireflies and just analyze and talk about and think about these things that are so ephemeral and they're killing us. To talk to somebody and to hear him talk about the actual people he's seeing in trailer parks and a woman who had to walk across the Rio Grande uh, with garbage bags on her legs so she could touch her husband for a minute who she had not seen for years. Just centering actual people, kind people, good people, real people. I I will not lie. I have listened to the last 10 minutes of my interview with Reverend Barber four times. And every time I feel better. So I just, amen, amen. All right. That is wonderful. I don't want to follow that chatter, but I guess I have to. So I have a couple of chatters, but neither really worthy of the name. One is just just that I'm, for the next month, I won't be able to concentrate on anything because of the World Cup. So I just want, that's my chatter. It's just to flag that the World Cup is happening and you should be watching it. I'm rooting for 11 teams. Probably Mexico is my top choice right now, but just the, the the actual cup started while we were taping, as you guys, I'm sure know that Russia and Saudi Arabia game is on, but I don't know what's happening because, but anyway, so just expect, <laughs> expect even more incoherence than usual for me over the next month. And then I just want to flag, I, I know I do log rolling for Atlas Obscura a bunch, but the, I'm going to log roll for something which I think is really unusual that we're doing. If you're in New York next Thursday to Sunday, we're partnering with Sotheby's. We've we've taken over an apartment near the top of the Woolworth building, which is this incredible, one of the most beautiful skyscrapers ever built and has now been refitted with these incredible apartments. And so we've taken over an apartment um, which has one of the best views literally in the world. And we're doing a series of events with rare manuscripts from Sotheby's. So we have one night where we're, we have the Springsteen's handwritten manuscript of Born to Run, and we have some Springsteen historians, and we're going to get to look at that manuscript and talk about Springsteen with these experts. Another night, we have a Poe, uh, an Edgar Allan Poe night with some Poe manuscripts, and we'll be reading Poe tales and drinking absinthe. So if you're somebody who loves beautiful views of New York City and also loves, you know, incredible manuscripts and maps and things like that, come join us. Go to atlasobscura.com slash events. You guys should come. Let me know if you want to come, Dahlia, John. I do. Come for the absinthe. Yeah. Come for the absinthe. Absinthe it's makes down, the heart grow fonder. It's down near the, it's on the southern tip of the building, uh, tip of the island, right? Near it's the Brooklyn in, Bridge? It's in Tribeca. It's in Tribeca. Okay. Ah, yeah. I'm in. It's, 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 yeah, it's amazing building. And then we have a, a uh, listener chatter. So I, actually during uh, the show, this, this chatter came in from one of our listeners who is Clayton Salem. And he flagged something that we've talked about on the show before, which is what do we do in a world where politicians or all of us have sorted or embarrassing Internet histories, where all of us 
and all of our children, I assume, will have done things online or, or their footprint is just embarrassing. And how do people go on to lead a reasonable adult lives? And he points to a heartening example in Maine where the Republican Senate candidate in Maine, who's somebody who I hadn't heard of named Brakey, Eric Brakey, he won the nomination for Senate on Tuesday night. He has an, a very embarrassing video of him dancing in his underwear that was Who up on YouTube. Doesn't. <laughs> and and uh, you know, and he won the people and and a, an earlier opponent tried to make hay of this and Brakey was like, look, it's fun. Who cares? You should go if skinny dipping. If you haven't skinny dipped, go skinny dipping. And he he won the nomination. So that's that seems good. It seems like an internet video of you dancing in your underwear should not disqualify you from serving in public office. You should be disqualified by the bad opinions you hold or the stupid things that you would do in office, not because you have uh, something goofy in your past. So that does it for our show today. Our producer is, of course, Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should chatter at us by tweeting to at SlateGabFest. Tell us what you would like to chatter about. We're going to do listener chatter every week. For Dahlia Lithwick of the Amicus podcast, which you should go listen to, and you especially should go listen to our Barber, Dr. William Barber episode, which I'm now going to go listen to right after this. And for John Dickerson and David Plotz, we will talk to you next week. And please join us in Philadelphia on July 18th, slate.com slash live for tickets. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.